Thank you. Thank you all for, for being here. Um, it's always nice to read at this bookstore. Um, it's been coming for a long time. And this may not seem like a lot of people to you, but when I began this tour, um, <laughs> I was in New York, which went very well. And then I went to New Haven. And I arrived at my event, and there was no one there. Not a single human being. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here amongst several human beings. Um, this is a, a, a slightly difficult book to read from because it moves um, it moves through very different modes of storytelling, different points in time. Um, the story is essentially that of a bipolar man who is in his mid-40s looking back at a time in his life when things changed dramatically for his family. Um, I'm not going to introduce it too much, and I have come to be a little bit tired of reading about very sad people. So I'm going to read one of the few moments in this book where... Um, He's on a high. He cycles through moments of, of mania and depression. And there's plenty of mania, but this is perhaps a more cheerful moment. We are at the owl. Tess out on the floor. Seymour running his door. And me, I'm working my bar. It's crowded with students. This, the night before spring break begins... An Emerson tradition, one last party before the party, before flying off to Mexico or Florida or Texas or wherever else they went each spring. Nights like this, I have a bar back. I can't quite see him now, but I know he's there, marrying bottles, bringing buckets of ice. He's a blur. Some local kid, a townie, who nearly by definition despises the students he's serving. He's someone talented, or he wouldn't be there. The job pays too well. We can afford to be selective. I can't see his face, but I have some vague sense that he had unruly hair. I may be confusing him with someone else from another time. So many bars in my life, but who gives a fuck, right? Let's just say he's a tall, thin kid with wild curls. Let's say his name is Matt or Craig, and that Seymour brought him in as a favor to the kid's father, who's a guard out at the pine. So around nine, the place is humming, and all of us are on. It's that feeling when all the planets are aligned, a rare and lovely thing. I'm on the upswing, then and now. There is no grime obscuring my eyes. I'm calm and fast. The orders come in over the bar and from the waitresses, Tess among them. I see all the drinks before they're made. There is no math too complicated. The world a perfectly ordered place. All systems pure. Let's say dead center you've got two long-haired idiots who think they're both Eddie Vedder. One of them keeps raising his hand, saying, Yo, bro, yo, bro, yo. And then you've got three guys you like on one end who tip well, and some girls whose order you already know on the other, and Tess is coming in at the service side, and she's waiting for two vodka tonics, one Jack and Coke, and three Cuervo shots. The guys you like are Coronas with Cuervo shots back. 
And it's all coming in at once. Nights like this, your filters are flawless. Nights like this, you're some kind of prodigious performer, some magical dancer. You see each glass before it's even on the runner, and then there they are, all in a line, and you can't even remember doing it, setting them up, six shot, three rocks, ice, 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 lime, lime, straw, straw. The right hand is moving the vodka bottle on the two count from glass to glass to glass. You start the jack pour with the other in time with the second vodka. Vodka back to the well, jack to the first shelf behind you. Always return bottles to their place. There must never be disorder. Your thumb on the gun goes tonic, tonic, coke. You sail that Cuervo bottle over the shot glasses and split three from the six. Tess gets her drink first always. She looks at me with an expression I can't parse. It is not part of our repertoire, our silent language of the workplace. There's the smallest pause, the briefest slowing, and then she pivots and glides away. Now the rubber runner is free for two martini glasses. Fill them with water and ice because you have style despite the place. You pop three Coronas, the opener as easy in your hand as brass knuckles. You deliver it all and follow with a plate of limes and salt. You smile at the guys. You remember their names. You say something funny about Florida. They say, keep the change, Joey. You mix the cosmos in a shaker. You think kamikaze plus cranberry. You think very tricky landing. Vodka, triple sec, lime. Very tricky landing. Because a thousand years ago, that's how you learned it. And every single time the order comes, for an instant, in a flash of film, you see one of those planes, one of those zeros in black and white, tearing out of the sky. Then the vodka is a two count, three times in one hand, so six, and the triple sec in the other. Then there's the roses, then there's the cranberry. You dump the chilling glasses, you cap the shaker and go one hard snap. More than that is meaningless theater and you don't need that bullshit. Now look at the girls. Look right at them and smile to say, these are yours. To say, even if I'll never fuck you, we can pretend. Because when you're like this, when you're fearless and deadly, when you have the fleeting maniac confidence, the electric rise that brought you to Tess in the very first place, then you know there isn't a woman alive who wouldn't take you to bed. And as if to prove your point, as if to prove your own invincible brilliance, you fly the shaker across each glass and there's just enough down to a single violet drop. There's just enough to fill those three full to their brims. They say, thanks Joey, and they smile up at you because you are elevated because you are impervious even to gravity. And they say in their secondary language, we would do anything for you, Joey March, anything at all. This is what it feels like out there at the owl on a Friday night in April with the love of your life speaking strange with her eyes when all the world is a land of perfect logic, when there is no downturn and Seymour Strout smiles at you from the door, gives you a certain nod that says he knows too that this night is a good one. That there is a secret rhythm, a secret chord, and all of us are inside of it. All of us are infected. And this good night goes on, and this crowd is another single thing which swells and deflates. Tess returns amidst some lull or another. She glides in on one of those shifts in pressure. 
a disturbance in the atmosphere. And she arrives with the same look, speaking that same silent phrase, I can't yet decode. I go to her and incline my head. She brings her mouth to my ear. It is a sublime and extraordinary privacy. We drop below the waterline. Down here, the noise is muted. The crowd retreats. She says, the bathroom, and I follow. This is an order I've never been given. Not here, not by Tess. I abandon my post. I give the bar to the back. There's a narrow bathroom out by the storeroom, facilities for the labor. When I open the door, she's standing, leaning against the small sink, her shoulder blades to the mirror. Close it, she says, giving a sharp little nod. I fall back. There's a quiet click sealing us in, and the bar noise loses its treble. Here, her expression is familiar. Lust. Though there is something else to it I still can't translate. Maybe it is the degree. Hey, Tess, just to say her name. The clock has started. The ice is melting. A towel is folded over the sink divider. A cap is loose on a bottle of olives. We're low on cherries. The bar is a savage animal I've left untended. Tess is looking at me in her new way or the old way multiplied and laced with some new thing. Joey, she says. There's a single dim bulb hanging from the ceiling. There's no tenderness in her face. What I love is when she narrows her eyes and tilts her head just an inch to the left and smiles at me with her lips closed, an uncanny expression which contains both desire and sympathy. This is not that. This contains a foreign and faraway thing, a flake of malice. She draws her hands up the outsides of her thighs beneath her black skirt and bends at the waist. Her face is replaced by my own. For a moment, I look at my eyes in the mirror, then down to the curve of Tess's back. She's upright again. She winds her panties around her right fist like she's taping for a fight. She reaches again and pulls her skirt up, not slowly. She widens her stance. Come here, she says. There is no sing-song in her voice, no girlish theater. Come here. I take the space between us, a single step. I'm looking down at her. If I were to look up, I'd see myself. I can sense that dark figure. She moves her fingers around the back of my head and squeezes. She looks right into my eyes. So I think I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I, I, I see my very first babysitter in the audience. <laughs> so... <laughs> I have, <laughs> I've yet, <laughs> not that, that this would shock her, um, I have not yet found the courage to finish that scene aloud. Um, so Joey is, um, fell in love very early um, and wildly in love with a, a, a very independent um, woman who has... Uh, really no um, well she's selfish the way men are often selfish 
she is uh, a wanderer. She disappears. She returns. She disappears. She returns. And Joey um, takes on many of the characteristics that we often ascribe to men, particularly uh, in in film and fiction. Um, so Joey is, is, in a sense, the princess in the tower, and Tess is a sort of errant knight. Um, and this scene that he's recalling is, is, takes place when they're in their 20s. The, the next bit I'll read is when he's um, quite a bit older, and he's looking back at this relationship from a point that perhaps has less heat to it. I'm afraid that I have made some fundamental error I worry that I did not look at Tess correctly. Have not. Through all the years together, and then from here too, from afar, in all these increments of recollection, what is the nature of this error? I'm not certain. Is it something to do with the way that I observed her? Something to do with beauty? With the effect her body had on me? To do even with the words themselves? Beautiful, for one. Think of the way I saw her in the bathroom that sad afternoon. The light on her breasts, the slope of her back, her thighs, her calves, her narrow ankles, all the rest I've described to you. The power she had. Not she, but her body. You see in those descriptions that there are no scars, no blemishes, no hairs trapped beneath her skin. All that body and so little mind. But that's not true either. More than anything, she exists in me as a force, a heat deep in my spine, a turning in my chest. It is not her physical shape that stirs me most or first, and it never was, not even from the start. It is everything else, will, fire, fury, lust, intelligence, vision, heart, humor, conviction. I am doomed to this litany, to confusion, to cliches, to dead words. And yet, and still, The way she appears here to me now so clearly, I see no imperfection. And is that not a kind of tyranny? Haven't I imprisoned her, us? She becomes material so easily, whole and in parts, her skin, her eyes, her shoulders, her mouth. I do not mean to do it, but there she is, assembling and disassembling. Here I close my eyes the falling line of her throat, her feet, which she did not like for their size and flatness. Too big, she said, so ugly. But no, there was nothing ugly. And I do remember scars. One thin curve soaring from her hip bone, left. A lopsided diamond at her ankle, left. The start of a spiral on the meat of her shoulder, right. Coming home from somewhere in winter, her eyes red from the cold, nose running, hair a tangle, lips dry and flaking, or the relentless pimples which appeared on her chin late into her thirties, the lines at her eyes and across her forehead, the flecks of gray in her hair. It was all the same. Her beauty deepened. I cannot change this, and I cannot avoid the word. For so long I have tried to make her ugly in body and mind but there is nothing to be done. Through all the years we are expected to stop looking at one another, I looked. When abruptly we were no longer young, through the panic of age and accelerating time and deteriorating bodies, through the shock of, the rebellion against, and at last the resignation to those things, I watched her. 
I could not stop. And I wonder if there was an error there, a failing somehow. I wonder if through all that watching I was doing her harm. If to see her always bathed in these golden lights was itself an act of violence. Was it the violence of worship? Have I, all these years, made her something impossible, inhuman? But then I remember my frustration, how often I hated her, how often we fought her stubbornness, her selfishness, her disappearances, physical and otherwise, her cruelty and blindness. I have not forgotten how anger flowed between us for so many years. That's all there too. And because it is, I believe I have loved her in spite of those things. I believe I have loved her fairly. So I think I'll stop there and we'll have a conversation. Thank you. Um, I should just say before we start that, that Marissa Silver is um, the author of many books, including oh. <laughs> Little Nothing, which was recently published. It's, I spent most of the day reading it. It's really beautiful, um, mesmerizing. So I highly recommend you buy well, her, you. her books as well. Um, and I want to say that I sort of um, shoved my way into this evening. That's true. Um, <laughs> Because Al, I, uh, Alexander and I have been sort of um, parallel playing book tour, book tour. We sort of seem to are like hopscotching, showing up to the place where the other one was the night before. And um, and I read his book while I was on tour, and I was so mesmerized by it in so many ways that I said to him, please let me interview you at Skylight. And so this was not an intent. He did not intend for this, but I, I said, rather than dominate the questioning from the audience, I'll dominate it from here. So anyway, I'm so happy to be here. This is an extraordinary book, and it's so complex, and there's so much to unpack. So I think the first thing that I, I do want to do is just have you maybe describe a little bit. I mean, the book starts with a murder, which you wouldn't know from what he, the beautiful passages he just read. So maybe you could just give us a little sense of what the book is. And um, um, I think maybe I'm, I, I have such a hard time coming up with an it. elevator pitch. I, I'll just read you the very first okay. chapter. It's, it's only a paragraph. In the summer of 1991, my mother beat a man to death with a 22-ounce S-wing framing hammer, and I fell in love with Tess Wolf. Now, many years later, they have both disappeared, and I am alone here on this pretty clearing in the woods, alone save for the tar and the bird and the other thing for which I have no name. Okay. So that, now you know what it's about. <laughs> so it's not just... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's about a lot of things. So... Um, <laughs> You know, the first most obvious question, and, but I think it's one we all want to know, is what, what, what were the origins for you of this story? I went to college in a small town in Washington State called Walla Walla, Washington. And um, at the time, it's now become a sort of hip wine town, but at the time it was um, an unhip prison town with a, with a, with a decent liberal arts college. And um, we used to go into the wheat fields and smoke pot and watch the sunset and um, play guitar or try to play the guitar. And there was always, um, you could always see the prison the prison lights reflecting, especially when there were clouds and fog, you'd always see that the sort of specter of the prison. And I was always conscious of it. They executed people while I was in college. Um, and 
I was a pretty spoiled kid and was not taking advantage of the um, education I had been granted. But I was I was still aware that the you know my neighbors when I moved out of the dorms my neighbors were um, the the wives and children of prisoners, and I was. I, I could never quite shake that knowledge, and it was a kind of haunting thing. And even many years after I graduated, I, I, I thought about that. And I originally set out to write a book about the sort of dichotomy there—the two, the two separate worlds sort of pushed together. Um, so there, there was that. And then there was this idea of of of, of writing characters that went against um, traditional gender roles, um, and I and I. I liked the idea of, of writing a, a man who was sort of stuck in a tower um, waiting for his love to return to him the way that, you know, so many novels deal with, you know, or, or not only novels, of course, films, television, we always see the mysterious man riding off into the, into the sunset, coming back bloodied and with full of, you know, full of stories, you know, to the open arms of, of his patient lover. And I, I like the idea of, of sort of Playing with those those roles. Yeah, I would. So the first thing that that we let's talk about that because there is this sort of fascinating gender reversal, both in the relationship between Joe and Tess, and also the relationship between Joe's father Richard and his mother Anne Marie, who's the one who's committed the murder. And um, when Anne Marie commits this murder, Richard sort of devotes the rest of his life to. He moves to this town and becomes one of these people who has moved to the town in order to be with the 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 person in jail and. Um, What's so fascinating about that is it's the book really sort of opens out to be um, a rumination about loyalty mm. and about what the value and the harm of being loyal is because both Anne, Anne Marie does this. I mean, she not she kills somebody, um, but she does it for a reason. She, I mean, I'm, she, well, she does it for a reason because he's committing violence towards his wife, right. but she also does it seven times. Right. So that makes us it impossible for us as the reader to sort of have a, a simple moral relationship to her, which is also, I think, I don't know. No, I, you think? I, I, you know, I've, 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 I've talked quite a bit about this, and, okay. and the more I think about it, the more I think that indeed, you. I think you can see her as 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 completely righteous. I mean, it was not a premeditated crime. She saw this uh, horrible man beating his wife and children. She she had worked for many years as an ER nurse in Seattle. She'd seen the um, the results of this kind of abuse over and over and over again. She was privy to the system that essentially endorses it, or at least protects the the perpetrators of those crimes. At a certain point. Like you know, like the the women in this college, you lose patience, and I think you know, seven times. I don't defend necessarily, <laughs> you know, vigilante justice, but you know, I, I, there's something about what she does that is at least understandable, and for I, sure. I, I think but there, I, yeah. there, but there's also. Well, as I read it, there, there, <laughs> there, there's an excess to her act that makes yes, it, it I, sort of there's a there's a question, and you bring that up in the book that mm-hmm. she's she's given a life sentence mostly because of the seven the number of times, not yeah. simply the. But I think that what I want to get at is more about this issue of loyalty, and what's so fascinating, and 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 Alexander touched on it, is that we're used to reading narratives in which a woman is forever loyal to her man, and this is a narrative in which the two men are loyal to really quixotic, 
challenging women um, who are not particularly interested in um, softening themselves to, to meet a man's um, expectations of them. And um, I, so just, I, I want you to talk a little bit about that because it really, to me, brought up well, what, are, what is the value of sort of undying loyalty and what is, what is the harm of that kind of love, both for the father and the son? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, the, the question in my mind was whether or not, you know, it was, it was true loyalty or it was a sort of pathological problem. And it's interesting because a lot of people, uh, particularly women who've read this book, have surprised me by by having little sympathy for these quixotic women you describe, and that surprised me. And I and, and I also and I I don't know why that is exactly. Um, I see Tess, and I see Anne Marie, the, the the his mother and the the object of his affection. Um, I see them both as as deeply sympathetic characters, and I, I admire the way they live their lives. I mean, they're they're a little selfish. But I mean, yeah. Okay, they're they're more than a little <laughs> they're more than a little selfish. But there's something um, wild and and wonderful about them. I agree. Um, and but but they act they really do. Um, they're constructed in contrast to our expectation sure. about you know how a woman and both of them have a violence to them which yep. we don't associate with women as much. And they right. both, um, you know, there's a, a Anne Marie. Um, kills this man, and then Tess, having moved to this town, becomes quite impassioned about Anne Marie, and she aligns herself with certain people from the university, mm-hmm. certain women who are also very impassioned about this issue. And um, but but there's a kind of violence and a kind of um, there is a kind of vigilantism about both sure. women, sure. and um, it's fa- it's fascinating that the two men are sort of carried along by it, mm-hmm. and that their devotion to these women. Allows them to um, not question something that is, in in some ways, you know, it's certainly not societally comfortable. Right. That's that's true. That's true. Um, I I don't I, I don't know. Of, I'm not sure what was the. What There's was no the, question. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, <laughs> the origin of that. I don't know. I like. I, I guess I like women like that. I mean, yeah. not violent um, <laughs> vigilantes, but but I, I I think you know I think of my my mother to begin with. Um, she's she's an ind she's a strong, independent, um, fierce person. And when I was younger, she was fiercer. And I remember so clearly in in this city, sitting next to her, driving somewhere, and some guy pulled up to us, and he said something, whatever he said, and my mom turned to him and just, I don't know what she said, but I remember it being utterly mesmerizing and shocking, and she was saying words that I had never heard. And I, the fact that I still remember that, I think, is sort of, it, it, I guess it's indicative of just how profound it was at that particular time. Um, and I, I, I've always liked that in women. I like yeah. fierce women. I like tough women. I like. I, but I think this book is unusual in creating these really... F- 
powerful, fierce, really unpredictable women, you don't see it a lot, and it's really refreshing. Oh, well, that's and and it's it's wonderful. It, it's really great. There's a third woman in this in this book as well, um, a sister named Claire, and I'm really fascinated by this character because she li- she really doesn't exist. Her she's not present in the book at all. The book is sort of written to her in part. Um, you, when he read, he's speaking to a you, and and Claire is a you. I mean, we are all the you, and Claire is the you. Yeah. But um, she's she's also a really strong female who makes a completely different kind of choice given the situation she's in. And I'm really fascinated by what, what your decision-making process was in terms of absenting her from the narrative. Yeah, I like the again. I like the idea of of, of someone, particularly a woman, doing something that serves her or. or or at least it seems as if it's if she goes to London, marries up essentially. This is a working class family. She meets somebody who is quite wealthy, and she just when this crime is is committed, she essentially she was she's done with the family, and she never comes home. And I I know people who who have done that, and I have you know I know. I have friends whose brothers or sisters have just gone. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, some of us have done the same thing. We just say, we're done with our family. I have not done this, but, you know, it, it's it's a thing that happens. And to demand an explanation... I mean, I think we demand explanations from characters in, in, in film and in fiction all the time. And I, and I think it makes for terrible art. Um, and I like the idea of a story where people do things that serve them and that's it. That's the reason. It's not because they were abused as a child. It's not because they had a terrible relationship with their fathers. It's just because this is what happens in a life. Which I think is also another thing that's really wonderful about this book is there isn't a lot of kind of, we don't really, aside from the, we don't know Anne Marie's back psychological backstory. So she she does she performs this crime or whatever, commits this crime. But the book resists saying, you know, why is she like this? Where does this violence come from? In the same way that it resists um, sort of psychoanalyzing Claire. Or and I right. think that's something really what makes it makes the book feel like a living, lived book instead of an mm-hmm. explained book or a pandering book because you know that's life. You but I think that's the. I mean, I, I think that's the reader's responsibility. Yeah. I mean. I, I, certainly, there are there are answers to those questions, but I think they should be provided by the reader. Yeah, and that, I mean, when I'm when I'm reading, I, that's what I like. That's what I like in a book. I like to be challenged to you know make some decisions about these characters without being provided an answer at the end. Yeah, I mean, but it also cre- it creates a sort of. Uh, it's a wonderful way of provoking a reader into a book because you're not spoon-fed the information that you want, and so you read more deeply and more deeply. You know, I want to go back to a little bit about when you were reading. You read a passage that um, is, as you said, uh, um, Joe in his sort of more manic stage, and one of, I I think you all heard in the language is, you know, um, Alexander's a really, I'd say, musical writer and a very poetic writer and and the language of the mania is very different in the book from the language when he's in his very low moments and um, it's sort of a wonderful way to enter into um, the experience of being a manic depressive and how did you come to that was it something that you knew early on you would do or did you sort of find it um, I, 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 I I can't say that from the very beginning I knew but very early on I, I thought it was, it was it was it's a great way to 
keep yourself interested as a writer because essentially I have I have one narrator but that narrator shifts so constantly that it began to feel like two separate narrators and that was a, a, a relief for me because when I was sick of him in one mode I could go to another mode right and, and so, so there, there's that and there's also I, I thought of it from the very beginning as a kind of piece of a piece of music which would rise and fall in in an, in line with his emotional experience and and I also thought of him um, I mean he, he's both his, his memory is both active and passive and there are these two separate modes of, of recollection one the memory he's, he's going in search of memory and in the other memory just comes to him as it, the way it does you know if we if we smell a, a perfume or a food or whatever it is that that provokes in us some some recollection but he is th- that happens to him sure but he also is actively seeking memory as if to as if in doing so he will be able to make order of his life and somehow i i associated that act with a kind of musical composition are, are you and musical no i'm no, no i am absolutely not musical hmm. <laughs> a, uh, i mean only i mean i i, I like poetry and I see mo- I see music in poetry, right. but I'm not a very good poet. Because I think but all of your books have that same sort of musicality to it, and the rhythm a, of the language is really precise. And well, it's a, I mean that's intentional. It's important to me. Yeah. To, for I read everything I write aloud, and it's very important to me for for a book to sound. I, I want the sentences to have a rhythm. I like. The other thing that's really um, prevalent in all your books, I think, is there's a way in which you return to certain images and return to certain mm. sentences even, and over and over and over again. And, and it, um, t- is that something you do consciously, or is it just sort of... Yeah, I think I've, I, I, in earlier work, it was a bit of a tick. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's one of those things where you, you, you substitute... Um, original thought or writing for repetition. Clever thing, yeah. yeah. Um, and if it was my mom, I think, actually, who reads everything I, I write, um, who pointed that out to me. Enough with the and, 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 and. Um, and she was completely right. And But but, yeah, but, but on the other hand, there there is a, you know, I do want a, a, a refrain or several refrains. Uh, you know, it, what works to me about it is that... Um, when you return to certain sentences, exact sentences or thoughts, it's the way we think. We sort of Mm. perseverate over the same things over and over and over again. So there's something, it really draws you into the interiority of a character um, because it's something that, you know, from the outside uh, a narrator would not do Mm -hmm. because it would be repetitive, but a person does. We all, that's how the way that we think we sort of circle back and back. And it's a, you know, it's a deeply interior book. I mean, he's not, a guy on a bar stool telling you a, a tale. Right. He is. I mean, at times he's telling you, the reader. At other times he's talking to himself. I mean, he is trying to stay sane, and I think he is using storytelling or something somewhere between recollection and storytelling as a kind of medicine, as a way to sort of to stave off loneliness. And I and for me that was always the project. That the idea was that he would he would tell this story to himself. He would go back and recall these events as a way to to keep himself um, accompanied. 
You know, in the beginning of the book, you say, uh, the mother says, nothing arrives out of thin air. There are precedents and there are signs, always indicators and histories. Only an idiot or a child could be surprised. And a lot of the book, to me, is about legacy. Hmm. And it's about, and, and certainly for the main character, he's obsessed with trying to understand whether his manic depression exists in his mother. Right. And, and he sort of, there's, he, he sort of comes to different decisions about that. But I think the book is a lot about legacy of what's handed down from parent to child. It's about what's handed down institutionally, about you know, violence towards women. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yes, I, I, that was also that yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> that was not, that was certainly part of the part of the plan from the beginning, um, and the whole no, notion of sort of the hereditary nature of mental illness and and just how clearly those lines can be drawn. Um, but again, I I, I I didn't want to provide an answer to that question, and I think it's because he isn't he never receives an answer. He wants to know just how alike he is with his mother and she is impossible she is stubborn and remote and um not very communicative and and so he's stuck with the question and i this book at this point must sound just utterly horrible (laughs) (laughs) anyway but um what's so interesting to me is during the course of it he doesn't. He doesn't seem to ally himself with his father very much, except over the course of the novel, he begins to see. He begins to identify. I think a little bit more in the way that he sees his father's deep loyalty to his mother, and I think he sort of associates his own loyalty to Tess in that relationship. Um, so I, I'm. So so it's interesting to me because I think children are always trying to sort of seek out who they are by virtue of who their parents are, mm-hmm. and um, in this case. I think he changes. I mean, did, is that something no, I, you I, thought about? Yes, I think he changes. I think it, and to begin with, he, he has he, he doesn't have very much respect for his father because he sees him as a naive innocent um, who is just sort of um, impossibly optimistic, impossibly hopeful, um, and loves his mother unconditionally. And in the end, I think he comes to see that as a as a real um, it's a, it's a quality that that he respects. As I think later, as we get older, those qualities are ones we come to respect and admire. And when we're young, I think we, I anyway, sort of dismissed that kind of um, pure, simple love and and devotion. Well, it's actually more complicated in a funny way. I mean, it's, it seems pure, but it's incredibly complex. I mean, I think one of the things that I love about this book is it's really a book about how men love. Hmm. And um, the women love their men, but they're, as you say, they're so much more fiery and more um, unpredictable and more willful and selfish, I think, in a certain way. But I think what came through to me really passionately was it's sort of a beautiful story about how men love, and it's not something that you see often, Hmm. I think. I mean, I don't know that they're they're typical men. but yeah, so I, I, uh, in the end, it's, I, I think it is very much a really a, about the way that a father and a son love each other as much as it is the way that they love their women. Yeah, and the women in the book sort of disappear little by little, yeah. which is also another, I mean, the mother, when she's in prison, she sort of removes herself and removes herself, and Tess removes herself in a certain way, and Claire has. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's very powerful in a certain way, because it's not about... The men's love isn't um, irrational. It's sort of 
pure because <laughs> it, it's it's sort of exactly what love is a, a, absent the object it's still there right right I, I think so I don't think I'm <laughs> asking questions I'm like <laughs> just <laughs> um, are there any questions from the audience you guys have any yes yes um, and, you know, initially when you start talking, and I really, I thought, well, God, silver light should look up. Right. Look, I haven't read it yet. But when you first start talking, I thought, well, of course, any social inequity is going to imply violence. And the people who are going to be most angered by that inequity are the, are the oppressed within that system as it dissolves. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, you know, watching feminism emerge in this culture finally at this late stage, it's really interesting to study the anger of married women, of, of the dolls. Suddenly the smartest girls in the class are running the world, and now these poor, mute, psychotic girls going through their psychotic mind episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really stellar to watch that. And, and so I'm hearing about this violence I'm not quite aware of because I don't know the book. Right. I can't wait to dive in. But wh- where does that violence is the impulse towards violence, is that towards righting the system? Is it towards creating justice? Or is it what I really think it is? It's just cultural imbalance trying to right itself, trying to um, re-steady and reposition itself in this kind of chaotic blasting out of trying to get there. And it may not come from the angles or the parties you would anticipate that violence mm-hmm. coming from. So I'm sure you've thought about violence quite a lot. And I have. <laughs> right. You know, and and maybe it's not what what we think it is. Well, if you're asking me sort of what where violence comes from, I don't think I'm fully equipped to answer the question. Um, I mean, it's certainly there's a weakness uh, to violence. Is well, uh, I I I, I'd, I would like to say that that's not true, but um, I don't know. Maybe it is true. Maybe it is true. I mean, there are there's a there's a a, a group of of women in um, in northern India that have assembled, and they all wear pink saris and they carry bamboo sticks, and they have attacked uh, police officers and they've attacked men who have perpetrated violence against women and children, and they created this group simply because nobody was doing it for them. Nobody was protecting them. Um, and there's something, in my mind, completely justifiable about that. It's an interesting story. I mean, I'm not advocating that everybody who has a cause gather, you know, and throw on some colorful outfit and start beating people. But there's something very interesting to me about that kind of movement. And I think you, you, see, it, you see it all over the place. I think also it's, in, you know, the, a, a book is not, a novel is not a piece of advocacy. But that these is are just pe- to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but these are these are characters who are under certain pressures and they react in certain ways and so I don't know that the book is necessarily saying yes you know people should fight violence with violence no. but I think that these particular women you're, that these very specific characters you've written have, find that the, the violence is a way of dealing with this kind of suppression yeah and it, and these are it's, it's a novel about two characters I mean I'm not I'm not writing a book it's not a it's not a treatise it's not a, a I'm not making an argument at all it's it's really about these two people and I guess I really don't have a question. I've sort of seen a late stage in capitalism mm-hmm. and a late stage in feminism and the unpredictable behaviors. And so, so sociologically, culturally, to look at those behaviors, which I'm sure you're very studied on, you know, it's just they're coming from places that no one can anticipate. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's sort of interesting 
to hear novelists speak because you're talking about that territory that nobody else can get a grasp on. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I think there, there are plenty of people who could sit up here and be far more articulate about the nature of violence and its origins. And again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just a novelist. <laughs> I mean, it, it's certainly something that's interesting to me, and I'm, I, I am, I'm stimulated by the world around me, and I'm angry when I read the newspaper, and all of the, and the people around me who I respect, I, they're angry about the world around them, and we have conversations about, about the world, and I, the, it, it all goes into the writing. But first and foremost, I want to write novels, which is to say, not make arguments. Any, yeah? I just have a question about your, um, your process with writing a, uh, a narrator who is bipolar, mm-hmm. gives you the range to sort of write high, write low. It, is it like you wake up one morning and say, I want to be the, the animal version today? And, um, well, I mean, there's a kind of, I think, writing in and of itself, there's a sort of bipolarity to writing. You know, you're working on a project that, that takes you three, three and a half, four years sometimes. Some days you feel invincible and brilliant, and some days you feel like you should be doing something else. And I, in my experience, the only way to write is to, is to write every day. And so there, there, there's that aspect of it. Um, and I also found a, a kind of a love for this character. And when I, I mean, this was a much, much longer, messier book when I, when I finished the first draft. Um, and there were, I cycled through. And I have some experience with this myself personally and it's um, I know a lot of artists I know a lot of writers and most of them are in some way or another unwell um, and I think you know it's 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 a joke but it's not r- really a joke I mean I know so many people who do some version of, of this work and everybody's not even do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to be delicate, but I, I mean, you know, I have myself experienced versions of this. Um, so it, it didn't feel, it didn't feel cultivated. I mean, it felt, it felt quite natural to write the character. And I don't, I didn't, I didn't have a sort of, you know, Mondays I would be manic, Tuesdays I would be depressive. It just sort of... So that's sort of my question. Like, did you, did you channel, like, your own sort of ups? Sometimes, Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I if I was feeling gloomy, I would you know exaggerate the gloom. If I was feeling manic, and I've you know I definitely there were days when I could write fast, and and I could I, I you know I want I like I you know you, you see somebody playing a guitar or you see somebody playing a, any kind of musical instrument. It's such a physical thing, and I've always wanted to make writing physical. And it's, you can't do it. You know, you can't really type harder, faster. You know, and and I I would love to be able to do that. And I've always admired musicians for their ability, or at least with, from from my standpoint, looks like it becomes a, the art becomes so physical. Even painting, you know, you get to move your arms around. And with with writing, you're just stuck there like this. And so I would try to kind of imagine that I was, you know, playing a sport. And, and I could try to channel that sort of energy and violence and anger or, you know, whatever it was that day and, and sort of burn it into the book. Yeah. So uh, 
Did you finish where you thought you would finish when you started? Say that again? Oh, no. The way that you thought it would finish when you started? No. No, not at all. I, I no. <laughs> no. And it never works out. I don't outline. Um, I don't really plan my books at all. So this book became a love story, a strange love story. Um, it didn't begin start that way? Not really, no. I, originally I thought it was going to be about a, a prison town. Mm-hmm. And about the sort of, you know, the locals versus the college kids and the prison guards and the prisoners. And I thought it would be a kind of, you know, a, a, a story woven of class. class. And, and it is that in, to some degree, but that's sort of not what it became. And I, I really cannot tell you why it is what it is. Any other questions? Any other questions? Comments? Leah? Because um, in reading the other two books, I, I felt like both of them dealt with polarity hmm. students and teachers, um, oppressed and the oppressor. And in this one, it was so ferocious from the very beginning. It was like, it was like a storm all the way hmm. through. But there was this great tenderness in this book that was also really different. Hmm. And I just was curious about it because they seem the three books seem, you know, like um, like a, a court. Huh. Um, and um, and this, I was just really struck by the beauty of this book in a way. Um, it seemed so deep, and also I thought the murder. Um, I did not have the same view of the murder because I was. I was sort of amazed about the way you described that murder because it was described both by the by what the murder was doing and what she did is um, it seemed to me which seemed very intimate and tender that he was describing them as kind of the same thing the violence to the kid and the wife was felt very balanced and right. the whole book to me seemed really balanced like. Hmm. You know, that in the other books you were exploring this thing, but for an unbalanced narrator, it has such It's a pretty sense, balanced. It has such a sense of balance. Huh. That was the kind of beauty of it. Oh, that's a, an incredibly nice thing to say. Um, I hope so. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I hope it's a tender book. And I, and I, I, I just, with this book, I wanted it to be messy. I wanted to, I, I wanted to write like I sort of described and I wanted I said to a friend of mine I just wanted to put everything in I've been so careful in the past I've been so concerned by beautiful sentences and and making everything sort of neat and delicate and um, pristine I wanted it to be wild I just wanted to be to take everything that I possibly could and just throw it into the thing and worry about editing later and I really enjoyed doing it that way and it's just sort of, I mean, not quite stream of conscious, but when I was writing, I just, you know, somebody would die, I mean, in the, in, in the world, and it would go in the book. Mm-hmm. And I just thought I'd deal with it later. And, I, and I, I, I wanted that wildness. And the more I read and the more I write, those are the books that I most admire. That's the, it's the art that I most admire, that where you have the sense that the, the creator of that art is a little bit unhinged, that it matters deeply to, to him or her, that it's something that is urgent and immediate and, and sort of 
intimate but also fearless and wild and, and sort of burning. And you know, that's why I love those Elena Fer- We were just talking about Elena Ferrante. And I, I could forget the plots of those books, but I cannot forget the, the tone the, there's something sort of on the surface just just burning there and that's a, it's such a hard thing to do and when I see art like that I, I don't you know that's all I that's all I'm after as an artist and as a reader or as a consumer of art yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I hope so. I mean, you mean you mean as a as a place, as a as a, or do you mean as an as an institution? When you say support, what what do you mean exactly? Uh, maybe sure. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, I, th- I think. Yeah, I don't think that's a. I don't think that's a dumb question at all. No, I mean it's. A, it's. I, I'm. I'm drawn to smaller places. I think perhaps because it feels, you know, the way an island does. You feel like you can contain it, which is absurd, right? Because it doesn't matter how small the place. There's always a lot there. Um, I have no interest at all in writing about New York. Um, and I and I like places where I, I mean honestly it's a place that I I've never read about in fiction so it seemed like a good place I'd 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 spent a lot of time there when I was young and it was a sort of formative world um, so for all of those reasons it 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 felt rich to me um, and I knew I know the I know the sort of geography of it I know the landscape I know the you know the smells um, so yes I think so yeah. All right. Anything else? Oh. Up? I was curious, you, you mentioned about the first draft and how messy it was. I was just curious. Well, what is that process of pulling, pulling those things together? Well, with... What was the end product? With this book, it was it was a long process because, as I said, I wrote wildly without too much editing as I was going along, and so I had you know six hundred pages probably by the t- end of the you know first draft, um, and it's been through twenty I think twenty twenty one drafts. Um, process of trying to impose a structure on it, or, or what is it that you're? I'm just trying to get to the end. <laughs> I don't, and I don't. I don't really know. I, I mean, I, I truly, I, I will start writing. I, I I've, you know, I, I find a character and a, and a world, and that's, and that's it. And I write until I get to the end, and then I go back and I and I try to sort of shape it into a story. Um, I had an editor that I was working with. Um, I was under contract f- with this book, and the editor wanted very dramatic uh, changes to the book, and so we parted ways and I ended up with a different editor and his his advice his his editing to me was was it, 
was invaluable. Um, and without that, but that was, you know, that was 15, 16 drafts in. Um, but he finished the book in a way. You know, he said, this is where I think you should work. And I did that for, you know, six months towards the end. And I think that was, it was very satisfying. Um, in my, for me, it's mostly subtraction. But in this case, you know, I, I, there was some addition as well. Um, I, I don't know. It's you know, I don't have a real logic. I, I, I write, sort of just, I, I kind of begin and, and see if I end up somewhere good. Was it always written to a U? Um, yes, it was written to a U early on. The, the and the U was was I had invented this character. It was no good. No good. <laughs> it was a mess. And, and early readers said, you got to be fucking kidding me. You have to get rid of that person right away. I hate him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Was the ending always going to be... Did the ending change, I guess? Yeah. The end... Well, I mean, I... Without giving away the ending... I, no, I actually wasn't sure, to be honest. Okay. It came towards the end. I, mean, I loved it. I just... Yeah. I, there's so many different ways you could have gone. Right. Right. A very specific way. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I thought this book would be a really happy book. <laughs> I, I thought it would be a real, it would be a sort of, you know, it would be my first sort of really look how wonderful the world is book. Um, and I think it is that for those of you, for, for those of you on the fence. Well, you know what it is. And just to, it, it's a fierce, fierce book about love. And it's really powerful, and it, it defies easy judgments, and it makes you th- um, really think about the wages of love. And, and it's, it's quite beautiful. So on that note, go buy it. Thank and, you and, all for yeah, coming. Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.